Hello, welcome to this afternoon's session of the China Research Group. Look, we're very lucky to have three fantastic uh, people with us this afternoon who are going to help us understand China's tech landscape. Now, this is clearly one of those issues that could uh, go uh, into many different directions, and uh, I hope very much that it will. So please join me in uh, helping our uh, speakers this afternoon uh, know exactly where you want to go. So they're going to introduce themselves, obviously, and introduce their uh, ideas and their fields. But as soon as they've done that, please do remember, we will be uh, opening up for questions. And I look forward very much to uh, having this directed in various different uh, ways. So look, without further ado, I was going to ask Rima, why don't you introduce yourself and then I'll go to John and then I'll go to Roger. Ray, okay, sure. Hi, everyone. My name is Ray. I am uh, based in San Francisco, California right now, but I've spent uh, at least a decade, I guess, in, in China tech. Uh, eight of those years were on the ground uh, working in China in a variety of uh, investment advisory roles. Um, and right now I run a a media company called Tech Buzz China, or in a media consulting company called Tech Buzz China, where we uh, produce content and then uh, also make investments in in China tech. So very pleased to be here today. Good afternoon, everyone, or morning, as may be the case. Um, my name is John. I run East West Futures Consulting, and previously I was a senior analyst with the Mercator Institute for China Studies in Berlin, and before that, uh, an officer with the Australian uh, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and Department of Defense. Previously, my focus areas um, cover a wide swathe of Chinese digital tech, but in particular, semiconductors, um, data regulation, cyberspace governance, and next generation telecoms, five G and six G. Hello everyone, I'm Roger Kramers. I'm an assistant professor of the law and governance of China at Leiden University in the Netherlands, uh, previously a lecturer at the Oxford University China Center. Um, and I'm mostly working on the law and policy of China's uh, digital world, uh, both at home uh, and abroad. In other words, how's China expanding its global uh, digital footprint? I'm also a co-founder of the DigiChina project, which we're doing together with Stanford University uh, and project leader on two major funded projects, one by the Dutch National Research Council and one by the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs, uh, working on uh, working on both domestic and uh, international uh, Chinese digital policy. And I'm very grateful for the Dutch uh, because, in fact, I'm Belgian. It's extremely good to have such multilateral, multinational, sorry, uh, panel. Um, one of the reasons we got you together was because we knew you could address various areas. One of the things that has come out in the last year is the fact that 2021 has been a pretty extraordinary year for China tech. And I hear I'm thinking of everything from uh, Tencent and Alibaba's uh, crackdowns, uh, if you will, and even uh, various things like the ride hailing app Didi not listing in the end uh, on the New York exchange. How have you seen 2021? How do you see that landscape going forward? What does this mean actually for the China Chinese tech industries? Um, Ray, why don't you kick us off? Oh, uh, sure. So I think, uh, number one, that you're very correct in identifying that 2021 was a pivotal year in terms of regulations. I think the right way to think about it is, uh, you know, the word crackdown has been thrown around a lot. I personally also use it just because 
the media has made it extremely popular, so everyone knows what you're talking about. But uh, maybe a more appropriate term is really rectification because uh, a, a good number of the policies that you see that have come out um, are really addressing the fact that the internet industry in particular was relatively unregulated previous to this. And part of it was because um, there is hesitancy about, or, or there was gray areas about uh, regulating entities that were effectively, you know, these variable interest entities list, uh, actually incorporated abroad. So there was just uh, all these gray areas where it wasn't really sure which ministries were going to step in and who's really going to be responsible. But there was also the fact that, you know, sometimes regulators are a little slow. So uh, the internet industry was growing extremely fast. And China was sort of taking care of other, other things in its economy before uh, directing attention to these large internet platforms. Um, so a lot of the things that you see are actually a, sort of a, a rectification, so meaning a catch-up to developed country standards. Um, in fact, what the things that Alibaba and uh, Alibaba particular uh, got, and Meituan, for example, got fined for would not be legal here in the US and would have been stopped a long time ago. Um, the second part is, I think, a point I want to emphasize is that I think these, these policies um, now largely that, you know, sort of the surface level rectifications have occurred. You're going to see China take a um, stance about um, being more proactive and regulating emerging technologies. Um, and that is going to be that's that's something I'm watching very uh, with great interest because these are things like AI governance, uh, you know, uh, things that you know developed countries haven't quite pushed out yet that China wants to get ahead of and actually be world leading in the regulation uh, on the regulation front. Um, I'm not saying they're necessarily tired of following developed country standards, but there is definitely the sense that, um, especially for certain technologies where the penetration is very high in China, there is this need not to let it get to the point, right, where the internet platforms are, where it was uh, so pervasive and yet the problem so severe that any action you do really spooks the market and, um, you know, it's seen as very severe. So instead, they want to take a more guided approach to some of these new emerging technologies. So look, that raises a whole lot of other areas that we can go into from here, John. Perhaps you'd like to pick up on that. And, and one of the questions I am curious about is what does this mean for the forthcoming development of technology in China? Because there are certain individuals who uh, I've been speaking to in recent months who've been looking at what uh, happened to um, uh, Jack Maher and people like that and wonder whether the correct thing to do isn't to keep your head down a bit more and to aim for the middle rather than the top. Are you seeing uh, that as a, as, a, as a danger for the Chinese, Chinese tech sector? So when it comes to the ins and outs of the regulation and the private internet platform companies, um, I will defer to Ray and Roger. Um, I perhaps will focus more on the other elements of your question, Tom, um, regarding what are the strategic priorities. And here, um, at one level, it's quite explicit. The 14 five-year plan, for example, lists seven um, frontier technology categories and also has a list of priority applications. But if we really want to zoom out and take a macro lens, I would say, yes, 
we are reaching many milestones. We are seeing a maturation of the regulatory regimes and so on, but there is also a great deal of continuity. And of course, China has a very deep-seated techno-nationalist culture, um, which you can trace all the way back to the Maoist strategic defense projects, for example, of the 1950s and 60s, um, where as long as the Communist Party has ruled the country, there has always been a priority given to developing technologies which are seen as critical to China's international power. Um, what you have today, um, which is different from the world of the Mahu's defense projects, is a globalized economy and transnational supply chains, which of course we're all familiar with now in the context of the semiconductor shortage as an example. But um, perhaps can I briefly offer, and I would like to um, leave as much time for Q&A as possible so we can get into particular things like semiconductors and the digital Silk Road and so on then. But three frames um, for thinking about strategic competition with China in advanced tech. The first is that China is not aiming for self-sufficiency in critical technologies. I think that it's important to stress this given how much attention is given to talk about self-reliance and import substitution. As far as we can tell, the Chinese leadership, and this includes the captains of industry and um, people throughout the bureaucracy, not just at the top, understands that China cannot go it alone. And it doesn't matter which technology stack you're talking about. Um, uh, they are more self-reliant in some than in others, but there was a clear understanding that China has benefited enormously from being part of an interconnected global economy, that many of these technological ecosystems are fundamentally transnational, that you can't untangle the Gordian knot. And so all of their plans are based on this reality. Um, what you have instead is Xi Jinping, for example, talking about pulling tight international supply chains to China. Um, but the understanding is clearly that the party will achieve its goals and the goals it sets for China in a connected transnational context. The second frame I would offer for our listeners is that this is a reactive dynamic when we talk about technology competition. Everyone's familiar with the concept of weaponized interdependence by this point, um, but the academics who popularized that phrase are the first to point out, as they did in the original argument that the more you weaponize it, the more the other side finds ways around it. And I think that you have seen this play out in the context of, for example, the semiconductor sector, the export control measures taken against Huawei. Um, what we do does affect what the Chinese do. And I think it's important um, at a time when there's an increasing focus on the political framework, on the nature of the Chinese Communist Party and what this means for decision-making by Western policymakers, that it is not true that what we do does not affect the other side's calculations and decisions made with respect to cooperation among like-minded partners, to institution of export controls and so on, do shape the direction that Chinese policy takes. I'm happy to go into deep, more detail in the Q&A. The final um, frame before I hand to Roger is to remind everyone that this is not just a case of the West versus China. And again, an informed audience will no doubt have heard of the phrase, the next billion users um, who are coming onto the internet and using these digital technologies. Um, in Southeast Asia alone, I believe the estimate is 40 million people who have accessed the internet for the first time just during 2021. Increasingly, the developing world will be not just the market, but the development ground for the implementation in particular of many of these new technologies. And so they will be a critical part of whatever emerging technological landscape or spheres of influence um, come to pass. And this is something that as there is an increasing focus on cooperation among like-minded partners, policymakers in the Western economies, um, in advanced partners like South Korea and Japan really need to bear in mind. Um, but there I will wrap up and pass on to Roger.
Roger, over to you. I mean, there's, there are so many areas that we can talk about here. I'd be very interested in your views, not just on China, but how you see the European Union's regulation also feeding into this uh, growing uh, balance between, if you like, the United States, the Europeans and uh, China. Um, perhaps you'd like to pick up some of that and then we'll, and then we'll be looking at questions. Thank you very much, uh, Tom. Well, there's actually a very interesting overlap between some of the things that the EU is doing and some of the things that China is doing. And if we can sort of systematize what's been going on uh, since late 2020, uh, I really think we can sort of break down the Chinese motivations to regulate uh, the tech sector in the way that it has. And this is primarily rating, uh, regulating the online platform sectors, right? Uh, large swathes of the digital economy have been left relatively or completely untouched. Um, and the first category is things that the Chinese government was going to do anyway. It's just, you know, idiosyncrasies of the system. You know, 20th Party Congress is coming. There's going to be a greater crackdown on content, including the sort of the, uh, you know, the infamous sissy boys regulation. Uh, so that's not really new. Uh, the second thing is managing macroeconomic risk. And this is primarily what we see in the fintech sector, where with the emergence of particularly the Ant Financial Group, you essentially have the creation of underregulated or unregulated monopolies or oligopolies in a sector that, if left uncontrolled, can actually lead to significant volatility uh, at the macroeconomic level. And one of the things that China really, really wants to avoid is a 2008-style meltdown. So what it really wants is to keep capital creation under control and keep the financial industry in what it sees as its proper place which is, as uh, forgive the term, handmaiden to the real economy and not as much a locus for capital accumulation uh, in its own right. The third is EU-style market regulation. And this is really about rebalancing the relationship between large platform companies on the one hand and users or on-platform operators on the other. And this is something that you can see, for instance, where it comes in personal data protection, but also in some of the new forms of competition regulations, which, for instance, obliged on-platform operators to pick only one platform uh, on which they could operate, which meant that uh, they couldn't, uh, that competition between platforms such as Alibaba and Tencent, for instance, uh, would be uh, minimized. And particularly that aspect uh, comes very close to a bunch of things that the European Union is doing or has been doing with the GDPR, uh, the New Deal for Consumer Protection and the Digital Markets and Services Acts, which are working their way through Brussels uh, as we speak. Uh, the fourth category is achieving uh, China's development objectives. So a lot of this is about uh, pushing companies to invest in those areas where the Chinese government wants, to, wants them to invest in. And so a lot of uh, data security regulation, for instance, requires data audits and cybersecurity inspections, which will create a market for the Chinese cybersecurity industry uh, and will cause that industry to grow, or at least hopefully in the eyes of Beijing. The fifth category is uh, fighting enemies at home and abroad. Uh, and this is where a lot of... Uh, uh, the data uh, security uh, interests uh, come in, and uh, particularly looking at uh, um, things like uh, a lot of export bans on data uh, and also limiting foreign influence in the digital sphere. For instance, limitation on foreign ownership of companies that have a, um, that have a large amount of personal data on Chinese citizens. 
And the last category is what I would call emerging social concerns in Chinese politics. And this is where it gets really interesting. So a lot of regulations were about things like labor standards. On the one hand, you know, the, the 996 working culture, which is 12 working hours a, a day, six days a week that we see with software engineers, but also at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale. So a lot of algorithmic regulation was about working conditions for uh, gig economy workers. Uh, the whole notion of the, uh, the uh, and, and here I do think we can use the word crackdown. I'm with Ray that most of it isn't, it's a rectification, but in educational technology, we can talk about a crackdown where the Chinese government essentially decided to destroy billions of dollars in market cap uh, in order to send a very clear signal that they are taking seriously uh, the concerns of uh, Chinese parents who are having a difficult time. And this really ties into, I think, an evolution that we are underestimating in the West. And that is the shift in approach of the Chinese government, which in ideological terms uh, we call the new era, uh, but is going to have very significant repercussions in policy terms. Because what the new era means is that the focus on GDP growth at nearly every, uh, nearly all costs that we've seen in the 80s, 90s and 2000s is increasingly going to be replaced by a much more composite picture where um, GDP growth is not unimportant, but it is not, no longer going to be a trump card that overrules everything else. So there is going to be an approach that Xi Jinping, if you were to ask him, would probably call more balanced. Uh, but certainly that is going to uh, take into account uh, other aspects of uh, socioeconomic welfare, uh, obviously as defined uh, by the Chinese Communist Party. And this is not just important uh, just for the fate of companies in the digital economy, but also for our broader discussions about legitimacy and the position of the Communist Party of China. Because for decades we've said, you know, what's going to happen when Chinese growth slows down, will it be able to maintain its hold on power? Will it be able to maintain its legitimacy? Well, actually, one way of looking at this is the Chinese, uh, is the current Chinese leadership proactively changing the terms of that debate and putting forward new uh, bases for uh, legitimacy, which are not just based on prosperity as measured by GDP, but by other elements of experienced uh, living standards. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, it's wonderful being in this uh, uh, in this in, in this lovely company. Uh, that's one of the benefits on doing these things on Zoom. Uh, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much indeed. I'm just gonna just gonna continue with that theme, if I may. And Ray, forgive me. I'm going to I'm going to throw it at you because what uh, I think Roger has just been talking about really is what what has been come to be known as common prosperity. And I was just wondering if you could. Tell me a little bit about how you see the um, the way in which civil society and tech firms have responded to this, uh, or just you know adjusted to these these crackdowns, and how they are engaging with the so-called common prosperity narrative. Uh, yeah, sure. I think you know <clears throat> even co like common prosperity, it was actually first used you know, not, not just in the past year, a couple of years ago, um, and has now been made into whatever the, the core goal for the Communist Party for uh, the Chinese society in the next, you know, several decades. The uh, initial reaction by Chinese society was also confusing, <laughs> so that uh, they were also confused, so much so that, um, you know, ex-government officials and academics had to come out and make all these videos and say, hey guys, a common prosperity does not mean, in fact, that we want everyone to be the same. Uh, you know, we're not going 
back to communism, but we actually just want to pull up the floor, right? We want to make those who are um, not enjoying the benefits of economic, economic development uh, as much as some of the other uh, people in, in society, we want to make sure that they do enjoy the benefits. And this is very evident in, uh, if, you, if you just look at China's e uh, economy on a macro level, uh, even though, you know, the national GDP growth is very impressive over the past four decades, but in fact, there's a pretty significant lag between uh, inland areas in China and the coastal areas. And when you, of course, compound, let's say, you know, 13% in the coastal areas versus 9% in the inland areas uh, over many decades, then you actually have a very significant disparity. So uh, people then started responding to it and, and saying, yes, that, that is actually what we feel in our lives, right? So if I'm living in, in a non, um, let's call it first or second tier city, I watch TV and I watch these people's lives, I actually can't identify, right? It, it, is, it is not the world that I'm living in and it is not the uh, everyday stresses that I have to worry about. So so uh, I think overall, you see that um, that the civil society has responded quite favorably after, of course, it was explained. I think that the uh, companies are also seeing this as a necessary um, it, 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 as a as sort of a necessary adjustment um, so that they can find the next a stage of growth, right? So especially for the internet companies, which is actually what I primarily focus on, these digital platforms. Um, you've already seen that in China, it's already, it's already tapped out in terms of users, right? So it's a billion people online now, um, penetration of you know, e-commerce is 30, 40%. Um, you, you know, mobile payments is close to 100. So what you're seeing is that the platforms also realize um, common prosperity will will help them. Um, uh, oh, oh, like if the if the country is able to implement this well, then it'll also help them find the um, the the next generation, the next hundreds of millions of uh, middle class users, which don't exist right now. Right, China has a relatively um, has a has a large middle class when we look at the absolute numbers, but in terms of actual spending power, it could be a lot greater. So I would say the platforms are also largely bought in. There is one little wrinkle, which is that um, common prosperity uh, also means so uh, you know the three levels to wealth distribution that embedded in common prosperity, um, you know on the business level, right, uh, and personal level, and then so paying your taxes and you know, do, doing all the right things. And then on the third, uh, on the third level, it's actually about philanthropy. So we did see that some internet platforms took that to mean um, giving money and, and engaging all these philanthropic projects and investors uh, responded a little bit by freaking out and saying, is this sort of a tax by the government? Um, I think it's, I think it's pretty obvious that it isn't. So number one, a lot of these, uh, you know, philanthropic projects are actually investment projects that are sort of longer term, mean, again, meaning to help the companies. And secondly, if you actually read the language, um, it's really more about getting the, in, the, the, the government actually wants the individuals to contribute more to society. Uh, Chinese corporate giving is actually okay, it's not on developed country levels, uh, but it, it is not nearly as far as uh, 
individual giving. Individuals giving is very, very low uh, in China compared to um, developed countries. And that is a target that the government um, sort of wants to change. So now you're seeing uh, you know, the billionaires um, step up a little bit more and contribute individually from their stock portfolios versus just you know, using the company's balance sheet. And I think that has been a little better received by uh, the, the rest of the population. Uh, yes, well, the question as to how voluntary it is, is is maybe one that Mr. Ma would care to answer in a different in a different call. Um, maybe I can push uh, John, if I may, onto the, uh, the the question about what Western sanctions mean, what U.S. sanctions mean for uh, tech companies. Do you see them as uh, national security motivated? Do you see them as commercially motivated? How do you how do you see the uh, the, the different engagements from nation states? Well, I'd be loath to second guess some of the decisions made within the corridors of Whitehall or for that matter, um, within the Washington Beltway. But um, I would make the general comment that clearly countries around the world have been reevaluating the cost benefit analysis of links with China, particularly in the digital sphere. And this is simply an extension of the security issues that come with the expansion of the Internet of Things and the digitalization of everything. Um, as the security issues multiply, so the implications of connections with a country ruled by a party dictatorship in which there is fundamental mental political distrust um, from the side of the decision makers, uh, whether they be in London, Canberra, Washington, or other capitals, um, is of course going to loom larger. Um, perhaps I can focus on the efficacy, as we can observe it, of some of the measures that have been taken. So if we take, for example, the export control measures introduced against Huawei, I think it's very clear that that has had material effects, that has dr drastically undermined Huawei's international smartphone business and the company's revenues. But it has also had perhaps unintended second order effects, um, which are not perhaps so beneficial from the viewpoint of policymakers in the US um, who are seeking to um, perhaps uh, restrict the development of the Chinese technology sector as a whole, or even Huawei as an individual company. Um, I mean, just to give one example, if we talk about um, who has taken up the business um, that has been lost by Huawei, it is primarily other Chinese technology companies, um, and to some extent, um, other industry leaders like Apple and Samsung, which also depend very heavily on supply chains, which are deeply integrated in China. So this goes to the point that, of course, um, nation states will increasingly resort to non-traditional measures such as export controls. Um, we live in the age of geoeconomics. Again, I'm sure that the audience is very familiar with these debates now, but we do need to bear in mind that it's not a one-way street and that not only do the Chinese respond, and of course they have introduced, for example, their own negative investment list, their own version of an entities list, etc., cetera, um, in recent years, but also the second order effects may not be promoting the policy goals that the measures were intended to achieve. And we've seen examples, again, if we use the uh, case of the Huawei export controls, for instance, um, at least reported cases of uh, American vendors setting up shell companies so they continue selling to Chinese suppliers of Japanese and European companies snapping up business that was lost by American vendors um, because they're not directly subject to export controls in the same way, et cetera. So bearing in mind that um, question very much of the particular technology um, and the particular company, um, I think that 
a very calibrated approach needs to be taken um, to these discussions. And of course, we are seeing now an increasing number of forums for doing that. Um, I believe that AUKUS has probably already been referenced in our conversation so far, but um, there is, of course, the new EU um, uh, U.S. Trade and Technology Council, um, new mechanisms um, between uh, the Quad, for example, or bilaterally between Japan, United States, um, South Korea, and other advanced technology economies where these issues will be worked out um, on a case-by-case -case basis um, and in detail. You raise an awful lot of questions in, in your answer there, and I, I wonder if I could pick up on some of them, which is, the first is actually from Dominic Benke in the uh, in the question and answer box. So if you have questions, I will I will try to get to them. Um, aside from introducing export control measures, how can the United States, UK and Europe become more competitive in digitalization and digital technologies? The question really is, are we hindered by our own regulations? Is this something that we can we can do better differently? Perhaps Roger, you'd like to pick up on that? Well, um, I like to be a bit provocative when I can. And this is uh, perhaps uh, one point where I'm going to be. Because traditionally, when we talk about regulations, we talk about regulations as being bad for business. And generally, business don't like regulation. Uh, I would also like to throw in the argument uh, into the discussion that uh, regulation can have very interesting creative effects. You know, if we never had emissions regulations for cars, cars would still be doing uh, three miles to the gallon, and we'd never have seen anything like Tesla or if we didn't have security standards for cars, uh, then we would we would have never had the sort of the the, the anti-collision systems and other uh, protective systems that we have today. So very often, uh, you know, regulation can actually spur creativity uh, by creating hurdles to overcome. Uh, what I think is the bigger problem to technology adoption, you know, varies from country to country. So when you look at it from the European perspective, you know, one thing that we don't have in Europe is a large platform company to rival either the US giants or the Chinese giants. And we could talk a lot about policy, but the reality as well is that the European market is... 30 plus countries with 20 plus languages, which is fragmented, uh, and therefore you can't build out economies of scale in, in the same way that you can do if you're a Chinese or an American enterprise. Um, also where I think uh, we've dropped the ball a bit is in actually perhaps taking our hands away too much uh, from the technology sector, where in a way what we've said after the end of the Cold War is to say, you know, the digital sector is a triumph of the, the private industry. We're not going to intervene, but we're also not going to direct. And when you don't direct, you don't get to set priorities. You don't get to sort of bring in ideas either. And so one strength that China does have very often is its ability to integrate resources, uh, provide government support uh, through things like subsidies, incubation areas, infrastructure, government procurement uh, programs, support for education and research. But, it, but that allows for the making of connections between different activities, as we see in the 14th five-year plan with this very strong coupling uh, between the digital economy and the real economy, which in an undirected, purely free market environment or, or, or less interventionist uh, market may form over time, but much more slowly. That is one element. The other element, and this is picking up on something that uh, Ray said with regard to uh, common prosperity, 
part of what common prosperity is about, uh, in my understanding, is in, you know, if we are talking about Jack Ma, it's to make sure that you don't have too many people like Jack Ma who essentially suck up all of the oxygen from the ecosystem. And I use that word ecosystem advisedly. Uh, it is a word that you see time and time and time again in Chinese development plans where they recognize that the digital economy needs to be embedded in other socio-economic and political structures. And that means that what you cannot have is very often what you have here, a situation where you have these large platform companies, be they Meta or Google or, or Apple or Amazon, and they really hoover up all of the oxygen away from not just other market participants, but also consumers or pre-existing industries. And obviously, you know, we all know, for instance, what happened to print media. And so a lot of what this common prosperity drive uh, seems to be about is capping the extent to which you, you generate these winner-take-all effects um, that allow a small number of market participants to capture an outsized portion of value added or generated in that market and rather move towards a system where you know, uh, in a way, you cut down on the apex predators so that the smaller animals or, or the plants or whatever have, have a chance to thrive uh, as well. And that is going to be really interesting because it actually may create incentives for innovation or for new forms of operation that uh, may be more difficult to develop under the current uh, winner-takes-all environment. Fantastic. Look, there's a, there's an awful lot more coming in now, and, and I'm very grateful that it is. Please do keep asking your questions. If I may, I'm going to I'm going to fire onto uh, another area where um, you'll remember that Dan Wang uh, was it uh, a, a few months ago, a few year, a year or so ago, um, argued that the best U.S. talent is being lost to Silicon Valley. How do you think we should funnel our best talent into strategic tech sectors as China is doing? What arguments do you think you can have with the uh, with the companies that make such a difference? I don't know, Ray. You're you're in uh, you're on the West Coast. Perhaps you'd like to put some thoughts. Well, well, I think one of the one of the uh, things that has has helped China direct. Uh, talent into, I know Dan's a big fan of semiconductors, uh, is actually U.S. policy, right? So without the U.S. sanctions uh, cre creating the necessity for all these uh, efforts to try to create a duplicate or self-sufficient whatever supply chain for semiconductors in China, you would not have seen the amount of uh, returnees going back, starting companies, the amount of funding, uh, investor interest, et cetera. And I just read, for example, that semiconductors, uh, semiconductor talent um, experienced the highest rise in salaries la last year, right? Again, China's been trying to build up the semiconductor industry since 2014 with its first national fund, but has not succeeded in, in directing people into that sector because uh, at the end of the day, I, I believe that China thinks this, this has to be um, partly government molded, but also has to be a market uh, reaction. And um, US policy happened to provide that market opportunity. Uh, in terms of um, internet, in terms of the fact that, you know, I know Dan, for example, complains that too many uh, people go into internet and uh, focus on soft tech. Um, I. There's no evidence really that the uh, government 
you know, quote, unquote policies have necessarily uh, reduced um, interest from people in, in being employed at these companies. What has reduced people's interest is, in fact, the 996 policy, uh, the 996 overwork that Roger was talking about, and the fact that these companies themselves are reaching saturation and uh, have slowed down in growth and are very sensitive to macroeconomic conditions. So if, for example, uh, you know, consumption slows down, um, or, or in the case of sometimes it's regulatory oriented, and, and you know, one one sector like uh, edu education gets wiped out, and there's no more advertising dollars from that sector, then it does affect the, you know, it does affect the uh, employment prospects. But there's not really the 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 fine point shuffling that you see um, in terms of talent is is not it's really happening based on reactions to the market like AI talent supposedly has experienced a slowdown or even stagnation of um, uh, of uh, salary in China but that's not because you know the government doesn't want to push this it's because it's because that uh, there were so many programs that uh, education programs vocational programs that popped up to support this uh, specific discipline that now, you know, the, the supply and demand has largely saturated. So I, I still think that if you want to, uh, you know, try to manage talent, you can have certain, you know, again, subsidies, um, and you can have certain incentives, but at, at the end of the day, the market has to be able to support it. Uh, if, if people, you know, are, if people are just being told that you know they should go study semiconductors because it serves the national interest or whatever, it's not going to happen. And we, we see that pretty clearly in China. Thank you very much. Now, uh, one of our fellow um, CRG um, board members, supporters, whatever how we wish to put it, is uh, James Bethel. James has asked a, a, what I think is rather a good question about what are our pinch points. Um, in uh, the Chinese tech sector, should there be uh, a deterioration in relations? Do we have a plan B? I don't know whether, John, you'd like to cover that. Um, from your perspective, I'm sure you've seen uh, various of the pinch points exposing themselves. Well, I did co-author a two-part essay on the subject of whether uh, China would invade Taiwan for TSMC um, before it became cool as a topic, if I may say so. So I may um, be I'm... I may be leading you into the semiconductor <laughs> question there, John. It may be an entirely yes, well. I, I would be much more comfortable there than talking, of course, to um, UK government internal thinking on such subjects. But um, if we stick with that for the moment, um, the short answer, my view there is that China will not invade Taiwan for semiconductors. They may do so for a bunch of other reasons. But what China wants with regards to the semiconductor industry is the situation three years ago before this became a geopoliticized issue because that was working quite well for them. And of course, um, their industry has benefited enormously from Taiwanese investment, skilled labor, and is still extremely dependent on it. So that's the short answer. Um, of course, that doesn't mean they won't invade Taiwan. That's a whole separate discussion about the political situation across the strait. But in terms of mitigation, um, again, some of the audience members may be aware that um, I co-authored when I was still at Merrick some uh, pretty substantial report on China's semiconductor ecosystem, um, which includes some very basic, um, this is a dangerous business, of course, but projections over the five to 10 year timeframe for where the industry is going to be in each of the main supply chain segments. Um, and uh, has some suggestions as does our follow-up report from before Christmas um, in the European policy context on mitigation measures. I mean, I think that to some extent this 
has simply got too much inertia now um, for policy wants to um, to shift the dial a lot. There is clearly a reshoring movement um, that has legs in on both sides of the Atlantic. I mean, just yesterday, of course, you had the announcement of EU Chips Act um, earlier than we expected, um, as it looked late last year, and that has some very ambitious goals. Um, of course, um, the House over in Washington has also um, adopted its version of the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act, um, the centerpiece of which is a uh, support package for the U.S. semiconductor industry. Um, and you have a whole range of other programs like those being run, for example, by DARPA in the United States um, with regard to particular segments of the supply chain, whether it's advanced packaging um, or um, reshoring advanced foundry work. Um, Clearly, the direction is towards bringing more activity home. The problem is that that is simply unrealistic as a total proposition over any time frame that analysts, certainly myself, would be comfortable in making projections for. So what you have to do is to find a sweet middle where, again, you slice up the cake and depending on which piece you're looking at, you tailor the measures accordingly. So in our report, from June last year about China's semiconductor ecosystem. Um, and in fact, in the December one too, for European policymakers, we talk about, for instance, differentiating between something like wafer production or other sections of the, um, as in substrate production, um, other sections of the supply chain that don't have significant national security implications, for example, where increased Chinese capacity may improve resilience at a global level. Now that is a very different proposition, obviously, from let's say having all of your advanced packaging located in China, where you are both perhaps helping Chinese industry advance the technological frontier, as well as exposing your supply chain to foreign hardware hacks, which is again an entirely separate subject. But this is not a subject that lends itself to one size fits all solutions. Even within a particular technology stack like semiconductors, you need to break it down and look at what are we talking about, what time frame, um, and what group of partners do we have available. Look, you've, you, you've gone into an area which I think um, also raises some questions for the UK government. Where should we be looking if you were in the UK government? What areas would you be looking at for discussions with China in the digital and tech sphere? What do you think our objectives should be? I mean, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it with you for a second, John, if that's all right, because I think that where you have, where you have got us to is uh, a rather interesting question, because it's not enough to talk about where the breakdowns are, or the pinch points are. You've got to you've got to think hard about what, what the next what the next question gets to. So, in the interest of fairness to my fellow panelists, bearing in mind we're at ten to five, um, and I'm sure that you, Tom, of course, are also <laughs> extremely busy. Um, I will confine myself to a few minutes. Um, I would say the UK has some clear strengths. Um, People are, again, probably familiar with ARM, the company, um, and where that sits in the semiconductor supply chain. Um, obviously, you know, the UK government has a review being conducted into that and the strategic implications of potentially allowing that to be taken over by a non-British company. Um, I mean, that, I think, is certainly the standout um, advantage that the UK has. Um, the other one would be, if we're talking about the global semiconductor supply chain as a whole, the other one, of course, would be... Um, next generation compound materials, um, applications of gallium nitride and silicon carbide, for example, which is also something that the Chinese are focusing on. Again, um, 
people will be familiar with the current UK government investigation into a potential um, Chinese-linked acquisition of certain interests within the UK, um, which uh, are in this particular field. Um, and you know, there are quite specific um, developmental goals which are being rolled out by, the, among others, the Shanghai Municipal Government, for example, with relation to developing, um, I mean, they talk about a Silicon Carbide Valley, for instance, and a complete ecosystem there. Um, this is certainly something that I would be looking at as a UK policymaker, even if ultimately um, the cost-benefit analysis is that we want to do less cooperation with China rather than more. But um, I will, at that point, um, give my fellow panelists a chance to weigh in once more. Thank you very much. Well, Roger, I'm going to I'm going to pick up on that and just add to, to 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 the question as well, if I may, and say where's where's our plan B? Where do you see ours and the Europeans' plan B? Uh, well, there's a couple of elements here, isn't there? Uh, one is simply the extent to which we have become reliant uh, on Chinese supply for pretty much all aspects uh, of our daily lives. Uh, you know, there is no alternative at this point in time for a company like uh, Apple producing its iPhones uh, in China. And given the fact that we already see inflation everywhere uh, in the developed world becoming a major issue in political problems, I'm not sure how we would respond if the price of an iPhone were to increase with 30 percent. Uh, because we force Apple to move its manufacturing chain out of China, right? These, um, like it or not, uh, in a way, China has allowed us to develop a uh, a level of material well-being that we otherwise would not have had, uh, and we pay with that uh, through dependence. Now, I am old enough uh, to remember when I was studying international relations when we saw mutual dependence or interdependence as a source of stability in the global system. We now seem to have, uh, we now seem to have come to see interdependence as a source of vulnerability in the global system. And obviously it is both, and it must be both. It's sort of like in any romantic relationship. You can only, uh, you, know, you can only have a true warm relationship with someone where there is interdependence, but no one can hurt you as much as someone with whom you are closely interdependent. And so that's going to uh, that's going to be the difficult thing. I've heard our relationship with China described as a difficult marriage without the possibility of divorce. And that is uh, and that is going to be the difficult thing. You know, very often one hears people come up with uh, frankly almost apocalyptic scenarios which somehow involve either conflict or fundamental political change uh, in China. And I think that is largely a cop-out uh, to avoid discussing the real question, which is how does one coexist? Given the fact that China is probably not going to fundamentally change politically, given the fact that we are uh, very dependent on, on this uh, for many aspects of our daily lives, and frankly, I don't see any political uh, party in, uh, in Europe winning elections on the basis of the message that we're all going to be voluntarily poorer so that we can be less dependent on China. Um, and I don't, uh, and uh, frankly, I don't think that major conflict is an option. So, you know, part of what we're dealing with is just having to live with the discomfort of coexisting. Uh, and, and that has to be uh, part of the plan B. In the meantime, we have to recognize that not everything the Chinese government wants is going to get. Uh, semiconductors is a good example. The interesting thing is most of what the Chinese government has gotten is bycatch that it didn't expect. Can I ask one final, well, 
I'm going to ask two final questions, but I'm going to ask you to be exceptionally <clears throat> brief. You'll forgive me, I hope, but Ray, what on earth is going on in the education sector? We see an awful load of an awful lot of Chinese students coming to study in the United States, in the UK, in Europe. Is the reality that China has got beyond the point where studying abroad is essential to tech progress? Is it now, can it now domesticate all of that? Or is it still dependent in many ways for um, students picking up skills in the West before taking them home? And then I'm going to ask you to be exceptionally brief because my last one is, it's 2022 now, is it going to be a smoother or a rougher year than 21? What do you predict? Ray first, over to you. Uh, sure. On education, I think the, the it's really just an economic benefit. So returnees still get a higher salary than local grads for many companies, although you see that changing. So uh, I, I do think that the demand for overseas education will be less and less, specifically on technology. I think it's very, 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 very niche programs. Um, a lot of people actually are not are, are studying abroad or are not really involved in in uh, really advanced research. So um, that might still be, China might still be reliant on overseas, but not really for a broader undergrad. People are just here for the upgraded salary. Um, and then 2022, I hope it's better. <laughs> well, thank you very much for that. John, uh, give us your predictions. Uh, as I said, always a dangerous business. I would say that it depends very much on the Western countries and not so much on China, simply because their policy settings are already quite clear. I mean, we have the 14 five-year plan. We don't have all of the implementation documents we expected to follow yet, but I would say, you know, as mentioned, there's a list of priorities um, and they also have limited room for maneuver. So if we talk about the semiconductor supply chain, they are not going to catch up to the cutting edge in uh, leading edge foundry in the next five years. It simply will not happen. So then the question becomes, um, what then are the variables? And that very much lies, I think, with the advanced economies. Again, it depends on which sector. But if we talk about semiconductors, what the US does with export controls, how much countries like Germany, the Netherlands, South Korea play along, these are going to shape the geopolitical landscape of tech. So I would say that potentially we could have a much more turbulent 2022. But um, the waves are not likely to be coming from Beijing there. If anything, um, like Roger said, the Chinese government has already told us what its plans are. Thank you very much, Roger. You have the final word. Give us your give us your prediction. Well, I'd like to, uh, you know, I uh, uh, I can only underwrite uh, what uh, uh, both Ray and John have to say. And it's always a pleasure uh, being in company, making your points for you. So I'll make an additional one. Uh, I think 2022 is going to be interesting. I mean, we've obviously had the major shock of the shifting of the momentum. And I think purely in terms of regulatory terms, what we're going to see over the next year is the consolidation, where we moved from a stage where, you know, these measures were taken at a point in time where they had to be taken quick and in response to events like the unfinancial IPO, like the DD IPO, and so on and so forth. What we're seeing now is that they've been digested uh, into the system. They're part of the 14th uh, five-year planning cycle, which is now in full swing for the digital economy. So we've moved from that sort of uh, you know, that, that knee-jerk response almost, that responsive mode, event-based mode, to a mode where they've actually thought through the bigger picture. And I think over the next year, we're going to see uh, the implementation of that. And that's going to be really interesting. But what I'd like to invite our audience to also think a little bit about is, you know, what isn't there yet? And uh, just as an example, to conclude, I would like to mention something like the data security law. 
And very often, I think we've made the mistake of only looking at China in our terms. You know, are they doing what we are doing or are they doing a different thing? We rarely give them credit for really doing things that we haven't been doing. And the data security law is my favorite example. In the West, when we talk about data protection, we're essentially always talking about personal information, the protection of personal interest against harm, very often in a context of privacy, you know, uh, fundamental rights uh, in the European Union. Um, in China, the data security law, which exists next to the personal information protection law, is actually there to protect national security and the public interest from all kinds of data-enabled harms, be they relating to personal information or any kind of information, infrastructure information, industrial control data, in, um, uh, data on geographical spaces, natural resources, any kind of data that could be abused uh, with a national security or public interest related consequences captured by this law. And I'm not aware of any other major player in the data field that has even begun to think about regulating in this field. And that means that China is a first mover. Um, and it may well become an example of how not to do things, time will tell. But in the meantime, it is an example. Uh, and this is just one of the many areas where I think China uh, is actually moving ahead and trying to diagnose and understand the externalities that uh, full, spectrum, uh, full spectrum digitalization brings to social, economic and political concerns. And it's moving ahead in a way that uh, frankly makes it the only game in town on a number of areas, uh, not just at home, but also increasingly towards the rest of the world, which is also confronted with these questions. Fantastic. Look, I am um, enormously grateful to all three of you, to Ray, to John and to Roger. Thank you very, very much for your time. Thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. To everybody who's uh, been with us live, thank you for making the effort. For everybody who is going to listen to this on a podcast or on a, a later broadcast on, on online, uh, please do uh, look up uh, the rest of the China Research Group output. You can find it on the website, obviously, chinaresearchgroup.org. And I have some news. Tomorrow we have a podcast drop, which is the Martin Thornley uh, episode, uh, in which we're talking about uh, a character who's become uh, rather well known here in the United Kingdom, Christina, uh, Christine Lee, forgive me, uh, who was identified as an agent of influence uh, by our intelligence services uh, a few uh, weeks ago. So please do look out for that. Uh, you know how to get podcasts, I'm sure, <laughs> the usual on all the usual uh, on all the usual sites. So look, thank you very much indeed. And in a few weeks' time, I'm very much looking forward to having China's place in the world discussed uh, online here again. So to Ray, to John, to Roger, and to everybody else who's been listening, thank you very much indeed. China Research Group will be back very soon. <laughs>